Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am a story career consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. And I am very, very honored to have with me as my guest today, Stephen Cronish. Stephen Cronish um, just was an executive producer on The Kennedys that is currently up for an Emmy. We're very excited about this, and I have to say I loved The Kennedys. So let me tell you a little bit about Stephen. Stephen was born in New York City, graduated magna cum laude in political science from Union College uh, in Schenectady, New York. There we go. A master's degree in journalism from the University of Southern California. He is married with four children. Uh, he started his television career with Alfred Hitch- Hitchcock Presents and then moved on to MacGyver, Wise Guy, The Commish, Maloney. Then he co-created Sleepwalkers, then he executive produced Profiler, he executive produced Street Time, and he was a co-executive producer, Emmy Award winner yep. on 24. Love it. Love it. Um, from 2003 to 2009. And then long form wise, Stephen worked on Second Chance with NBC Studios and Michael O'Hare in 2002, Above Suspicion with uh, Patricia Clifford Productions in for USA in 2003, and The Last Best Hope with Patricia Clifford Productions uh, and CBS in 2003. Wow, you have quite a career here. The longevity is unbelievable. Well, if you hang around long enough, they just give you things. So that's what I'm trying to. I love this. Now, did you ever, when you started your career and and during this mass body of work, did you ever have dry spells? Did you have a dry spell before you got your first start? Tell us about that. My dry spell was roughly 10 years. Wow. Um, It took me about 10 years to get a job. Okay. I, I moved out here and 1973, I did a variety of of things to keep myself going while I was writing scripts uh, with some degree of dedication, probably not as much as I should have had, but, um, and it wasn't until uh, the fall of 1984 that uh, sort of the first break came along. It had been as a result of a play that I had written Oh, I loved um, it. And uh, uh, some people came to see it, and uh, one thing kind of led to another, and that led to the uh, Alfred Hitchcock job at NBC. I want to be clear that this was not the Alfred Hitchcock with the original Alfred Hitchcock. He was long since gone. Right, this, These right. were remakes. Well, thank you for clarifying. Um, but, uh, yeah, because I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> um, but you are not it was, old. Uh, since then, actually, it's, it's been kind of a, a pretty good run. I've been very lucky, and uh, I, I, I got to work with 
a lot of people who who were willing to teach. I, I was particularly, I mean, the, the one, the, the guy who stands out to me um, was a was a very very prolific writer producer in the seventies and eighties, Stephen Cannell, oh, yeah. who uh, who fan. who gave me and a lot of other guys an opportunity. Um, and he was the kind of guy who was secure enough in his own position where he didn't regard us as threats. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to learn how to do television, he was willing to teach you. And I think that, that that's one of the changes that's occurred in the business over the last period of 20-odd years, I guess, that I think has not been beneficial to the business. Um, I'm not saying that, that running a television show is, is brain surgery or, or rocket science, but there are things you have to know, mm-hmm. and there are complexities to the job, and I think you, you, you have to sort of earn your way into that position. And what, what I think is, is a little bit of a problem is that um, I think that there are, a lot of, there are a lot of people who are elevated to that position of, of authority yes. on a show who are just not, who don't have the experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, um, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of things about running a show that have nothing to do with television. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be an accountant. You have to be uh, a babysitter. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out how to deal with the often uh, strange personalities of uh, of actors yeah. and directors, and everybody wants and, and other writers and other writers <laughs> and other writers. Yep, and network executives, and it's yes, it's quite a uh, it's a challenging job. At least it was it. It, it is for me. I, I, I find that um, I envy guys who can uh, delegate. Um, I think sometimes when the show is your creation, it, it can be difficult to do that because yes. you, you know, it's your baby. Yeah. Um, but I also never wanted to be in a position where I would get a call from a network executive who would ask me a question that I couldn't answer. Yeah. Um, but so for that reason, you didn't delegate because you well, wanted to be on top I, of I, everything. I'm, I'm yeah. sure the people who who worked with me would say I was not a very good delegator. Right. Um, I was never a good delegator. In well, my it, career, you know, it's so tough, I and, I, and I think you you have to. I wish I had been better at it. I yeah. probably would have had a better. Uh, life in terms you of you have had a spectacular well no but life. what i mean I about that is in terms of you know particularly when my children were little right um you know more I, time yeah time, more time management more time yeah I, I you know i would basically say good night to them on sunday night and i wouldn't see them again till saturday morning and i was living here it wasn't like i was on location so wow it it that part of it was tough was hard. and um so there was a lot of time missed right but um i think that you know there are, there are there are obviously rewards that come with it. Um, hopefully, they are creative in addition mm-hmm. to financial. Right. Um, I find that 
I know that when I've done, when I've taken jobs just for the check, right, it was not a good situation. I think the you know the the fifteen minutes out of the week when it takes you to go takes you to go to the bank, right, are not enough if you're not getting some degree of of creative satisfaction out of what it is you're doing. Yes, and definitely. I think that that would be if I had any advice for people who are starting out. And I know that when you're starting out, you tend to take you know, any job that's offered because you know how difficult it is to get them. Mm-hmm. But I really think that uh, if, if you can be somewhat judicious about the... I don't think you can be judicious till later, though. I think I think well, at the beginning, I think I like to believe that you can be a little in the beginning, but in the beginning, you're just happy to get a job. Yes, you are happy to get a job, <laughs> and and clearly there, you know, there are some, you know, jobs that I had at the beginning that right. I took because hey, yes. it was it was another it was job, and it's, it be, yeah. beats sitting at home writing specs. And it was a step toward yes, the direction you want to go. No question. You know, and like I look at your body of work and I go, okay, how fascinating! Like to even look at how, how story has evolved from MacGyver through Twenty Four. Speak to that, like the idea of how story has evolved strategy-wise as you go into writing a script. Well, I don't, I mean, it may sound a little crazy, but I don't think there's that much difference in terms of the way you approach the script. Right. Um, Obviously, MacGyver is a very different show than 24. Right. Um, You have to recognize that MacGyver was popular in its time. Right. That time is over, right. more or less. 24 was popular in its time. Uh, that time is not yet over in I terms of, of other shows yeah, that are coming similar. along like it. Right. Um, but I think you still, you know, it's still the challenge of telling a good story. Mm-hmm. And it's still a challenge of, of structuring that story right. so that you are, you are, you're working within the framework of what uh, of network television in terms of, you know, you got four or five commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a believer. I was brought up. Steve Cannell taught me right. that your your act breaks are very important. Yeah, they're I what grew keep up, yeah, they're what keep the well. audience coming back. Yeah, and I I I think that um, so you know you you're you're trying to build toward a moment mm-hmm. where, you know, just before you break for commercial, the audience goes, uh-oh, or, you know, there's something unexpected happens that makes them, you know, stay tuned. And I right. think that that's something that over the years, you know, well, I mean, when I started in television, you basically had three networks and local stations, and that was it. Right. There was no cable. There was no DV- DVDs. There was no there were no competing um uh, there was no competing situation. Right. You know, you you had this. You you either watched those things or you didn't watch television. Right. You know, now clearly you have this proliferation mm-hmm. of 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 competition. Mm-hmm. So if you don't if you don't keep them sitting there watching your show, they're going to leave. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you talk about the act breaks because that's exactly what I was speaking about structurally. Like when I started my career in 1992. And Aaron Spelling was my mentor and started in his office. You know, 
when I look at the strategy of story then, it was hitting the aha moments at the act breaks without a lot of strategy going into the idea of, okay, start your story with a powerful dilemma, have a clear goal stem from it, and then have your act outs connect back to your goal in some way and escalate them. Mm -hmm. I feel like now that's where we are. Whereas then we were more about what is the most emotional moment that's going to bring your audience back without a lot of strategy going into that moment. Well, uh, you know, I I think that, uh, again, you know, Cannell was a, was a great believer in, you know, your, your hero has a goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are impediments to that goal. Right. Uh, 99... Cases out of 100, he's going to achieve the goal, but only at the end. Right. And you sort of, you know. You and sort that's of, all still there. And yeah. that's all still yeah, there. And I think it will always there. be, you know, I yeah. think, I think you know, that probably started with the Greeks. Yeah. I would imagine that yeah. the basic tenets of drama of really haven't changed yes, much in 3,000 years. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, there are I, people today challenging the story is evolving like the future of story and going into the idea which which i think is interesting i mean when we think about breaking bad and true blood Mm -hmm. versus you know serialized shows 15 years ago like dynasty very different you know well certainly you would never have seen a show like breaking bad on on television 15 years ago right but you also don't see it today on broadcast networks right right i think that if you asked uh, any network executive knowing the success of a show like The Sopranos, right? Would you put it on your air? And I believe the answer would still be no, right? Because the they have to worry about a completely different set. They do of of problems. Yeah, they, they have do. to worry about the ratings advertisers, yeah. and advertisers yeah. and cable, mm-hmm. pay cable certainly. Yeah, does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're what you're seeing, the 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 thing that's a little bit disappointing to me. Is that on the network level, the broadcast network level, um, it does feel to me that rather than try to be as innovative as possible in terms of the choices they make as, as far as, you know, series ideas are concerned. Um, they've sort of abrogated that role to cable. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's too bad. Mm -hmm. I think that um, I don't know, you know, how many CSIs you need. Right. Um, I agree. How many law and orders do you really need? Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, if you look back at, you know, the quote, unquote, you know, the maybe not the golden era of television in terms of the 1950s, but the golden era of television in the 1970s and early 80s when you had shows like um, NYPD Blue and you had, uh, you know, even sort of quote-unquote softer shows like Family. Right. You had the great comedies of, of All in the Family, and um, which, was, which people, I think, lose sight of the fact of how groundbreaking All in the Family was and the fact that because of its topical humor and because of its racially bigoted lead character, right? Um, you know that show couldn't be on the air today, right? You're right. Because of the now it could on cable, right? 
but not because on net, but not on broadcast that, network. Yeah, you're right. And I think that's, uh, I do think that's kind of a, a shame. Because, I agree. Um, I mean, I think some of broadcast network, like I definitely look at the Good Wife, and I mm-hmm. think there are parts of the Good Wife that mm-hmm. push the envelope, mm-hmm. and I like that, mm-hmm. and I appreciate mm-hmm. that, and I think Criminal Minds probably does go a little beyond the boundary. Um, so I, I do look at certain shows, and I like to believe that they're they're testing the idea of pushing a little bit. But I think when you think about things like, say, for example, Janet uh, Jackson, I mean, how that set us all back <laughs> as we were liberating and moving forward into the idea of the network being a little bit more liberal. You know, so it, it is it is really interesting. Well, OK, on this topic, which is very good to segue into the candidates. Mm-hmm. So um, so tell me about that whole creative experience as far as selling the show getting the show with one network and then getting shut out and going to another network for the premiere of the show how did all that work well i i would have to back it up a little bit mm-hmm. to say that um my my co-executive producer my partner uh in in the kennedys is a guy named joel cerno who uh created 24 yeah uh i worked for him mm-hmm. on 24 i he worked for me on uh, a show that i co-created with steve cannell called the commish we've known each other a long time i love it uh we come from opposite ends of the political spectrum right um Makes it more um, interesting. Well, yeah. we, you know, uh, actually got to the point where we just sort of agreed to disagree and we don't really talk about it too much. Right. He knows he's not going to change my mind and I'm not going to change his. And you accept. We, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, we yeah. play golf together and we talk about golf. Right. But um, <laughs> he is a he is a conservative Republican. I'm a liberal Democrat. Right. And, uh, but... Um, oh, that must me, have been really interesting going into... Well, you... you in a way, I think that probably most people don't wouldn't believe. But right. he, uh, this was about uh, probably three years ago now. Uh, he called me up on a summer's evening and asked me if I would be interested in doing a miniseries about the Kennedys. Um, he knew what my answer was going to be because over the years uh, we'd had conversations in which he knew that I was a fan of the Kennedys. I mean, mm-hmm. J- President Kennedy was the first president that I was aware of. Uh, I, I, he was my idol in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, so I basically told Joel that I would crawl through broken glass to, uh, to do a miniseries about him. And uh, uh, fortunately, um, you know, over, over the span of my, my life, I had done a fair amount of reading, not, not for research purposes, but just because I was interested in them. Right. Um, the show basically uh, had already been sold. Mm-hmm. Um, the History Channel uh, came to a producing partner of Joel's, said that they were interested in doing this miniseries. Um, that gentleman's name is Jonathan Koch. He called Joel, and Joel said, I got the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we basically began by putting together... Um, I guess kind of a Bible. We had started out with the assumption that we were going to do 10, ep- ten episodes. We, we wound up shrinking that to eight. Um, but basically, we went to New York, met with the uh, History Channel people, Nancy Dubuque, 
uh, Dirk Hoekstra, who were the two main, uh, Nancy runs the network and runs Lifetime now, um, basically laid out for them what our approach to it was going to be, which was to try to use the, the political stories that everybody knows to, that they were going to be the backdrop to sort of the personal side of their lives. Um, being as it is the History Channel, we knew that we were going to be held to strict standards of what could be historically verified. We were not going to be, this was not a, it was not a documentary, but it w- neither was it a fictional account. Uh, it was based on events that could be verified. Right. And they, the History Channel, put a historian of, of their choosing uh, on this project. He worked with us extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we couldn't produce, uh, I have a background in journalism, so I kind of knew, you know, what, what sources mean. And I right. knew what multiple sources mean. Right. Uh, if we didn't have multiple sources for a particular event, we couldn't use it. Interesting. Um, now, there are, and, and because in terms of the public or political aspects of the administration and in much of their lives, uh, you know, there were taping systems. I mean, Nixon was not the first to put a taping system in the White House. Right. Um, so many of the things that were going on yeah. at the during the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. or during mo- most of the major conversations were taped. So we had transcripts. We wow. knew exactly who said what, when. Okay, yeah. Now, there were no tapes in the bedroom right. of the White House. Right. We don't know. Nobody knows right. exactly what was said. Right. But we do know what the behaviors were. Mm-hmm. We do know that, um, that President Kennedy had um, affairs outside of his marriage. Right. That's no secret. Right. We do know that it upset Jackie Kennedy yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. We do know that she would periodically leave the White House, mm-hmm. sometimes with the children, sometimes without. Uh, some of the breaks she took were fairly extensive, um, but she always came back. Mm-hmm. So we sort of base the construction of a scene mm-hmm. on the behaviors that we know. Yeah. And, you know, so, yes, were those scenes, was the dialogue in those scenes invented? Yes. But when it was presented to the historian, um, you know, if he felt that these were reasonable approaches based on, on again, behaviors Common that we knowledge, know. knowledge, right. Um, he would say so. If yeah. he thought we were out in left field, he right. would say so. Right. In which case, we, we had to change them. Um I have to admit, like when from a viewer's standpoint, and I it's I like that you touched on that because I I loved, I think I I just loved the way you, you arced the story and the way you weaved everything in. And with Jackie, what I loved was how you wove the flashback arc at certain moments in the present that really connected how all the red flags were there or what led up to the present moment that it was kind of a voice for 
all women who have gone through that type of experience. Well, so it, I, I, you know, I think, again, she was a product of her time. Mm-hmm. You know, today, I suppose there are a lot of women who would not tolerate right. that kind of behavior right? Uh, in, by their husbands. Um, in those days... You know, well, as I'm we not, see with Maria Shriver. Well, you know, you know I, I mean, there, there's a hot button name right there. Yeah. But I think that, I think that what we tried to do with with those characters was, we, for example, we had a, we had a scene in in one of the episodes where uh, with Jackie and her mother. Mm-hmm. Now, most people who remember Jackie Kennedy or or have even read about her or seen pictures of her or what have you. Um, for them, she is kind of the epitome of glamour and beauty. She is what fascinated the American public, I think, mm-hmm. in maybe even more than he did. Right. Um, which was something that he recognized, uh, resented a little. Right. Um, but recognized that how much of a how, how much of an asset she was to right. him. You have to remember that uh, they were following the Eisenhowers, who were like everybody's grandparents. Right. These were people the who were— The hot, young Hollywood couple. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, people—it's it, yeah. hard to imagine, but, you know, he was 43 years old. I know. It was shocking. And she was 31. Yeah, 31. She was 31 when she was first yeah. lady. I mean, most—I don't know too many 31-year-olds— I agree. —who could have handled that. Who could have moved into the White House. And as you say, the scene with her mom, where we see— and her, her thorn, like, yeah, and her mother yeah. was was somebody who constantly belittled mm-hmm. her her looks yeah. and her intelligence, and she her thing. You know, she said to her that you know, Jack Kennedy can have any woman he wants. What what does he want with you? Yeah, I mean, and that I think that was a her. a yeah. wound yeah. that she mm-hmm. and I I think the psychology that she might have had would have would have reversed that and said you know if Jack Kennedy who can have any woman he wants wants me right. then maybe I'm not so bad mom right and that and, can't yeah and that came across and and I I think that so those were the kinds of things yeah. that where we felt that has nothing to do with politics mm-hmm. and it has everything to do with just a human relationship and what we all and connect people can, with. yeah yeah and i think that uh you know dealing with a uh dealing with a domineering father dealing with uh you know jack and and bobby kennedy were arguably you know the two most powerful men in the world right but they still did what daddy said yeah that and, was the scary thing that i had to admit like everything i looked at in the kennedys i thought okay i knew about as you say I would say 95% of it. There were certain things I didn't know. Like, I didn't know about the mob and Frank Sinatra and all of that. And so that kind of shed light for me on the politics behind who wins president and why and what is connected to that. And I thought, wow, that was kind of a big revelation for me. Well, you know, you I, know? I think I think it thing that... Those kinds of things had been rumored yeah. for years. Yeah. Um, I think there still is an open question as to exactly. how much yeah. Jack, uh, Joe Kennedy promised or mm. didn't promise. But I think certainly there are many people who believe that, um, and I think I think Bobby believed this, and I, it, it does come out in uh, the final episode of The Kennedys, um, that... Uh, that the mob might have been involved in in Jack's assassination yeah. because uh, 
if you believe that certain assurances were made mm -hmm. to the mob in return for their help. Mm -hmm. And then Bobby turns around and immediately Renegs. goes after yeah. them with the organized crime yeah. uh, commission at the uh, at the Justice Department and things like that. That um, that the mobsters said, "Well, wait a second. Mm -hmm. You came to us. You asked for our help. We gave it to you, and now you're you're going after us. You're coming we're, after we're, us. Well, that's yeah. a double cross. Yeah. And these are guys who don't who don't like being double crossed. Yeah. yeah. And so whether it's whether it's a uh, you know, one of their fellow mobsters on the street, or the president of the United States, um, they don't. Were you nervous they don't take that. dealing with that? No. Uh, see, I, I always like no. I think about. <laughs> well, I, I think you know. Look, on the one hand, all the people who were involved in it are dead. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that. Uh, right. And I, you know, I, I think there has been enough uh, published over the years where you know, deathbed confessions and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, I no, I wasn't I wasn't I, I wasn't worried about the mobsters and I was not worried about the Kennedy family. Yeah. And I suppose I should have been more worried about the Kennedy family than I was about was the Was it mobsters. a surprise when the news came? It was a an absolute shock wow. to me. Wow. Now I I think Joel had been dealing with it uh longer. Mm -hmm. He he sort of kept me out of it, mm -hmm. I think, because at the time we were, you know, we, I think he, he probably felt that he needed my, my sort of undivided attention on what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, but when he called me and said, are you sitting down? Um, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And then he said that the History Channel is not going to air the miniseries. I, I, I think it, I, uh, it took me a few minutes, I think, to formulate a coherent sentence. I didn't, I just was totally shocked. I mean, because to imagine the money that went into something like that and then to hear that news. Well, you know, the money and I think, uh, you know, I, I think we, we thought, I thought, that uh, you know, we were large chunk of your lives. Well, I put into. I put two years into it. Yeah, yeah. and I, I I have to say that uh, this was this was a decision that was not made mm -hmm. by Nancy Dubuque right. and the people at the History Channel itself. Right. Our creative partners were uh, you know just as shocked and just as upset as we were. Mm -hmm. This was a corporate decision. Yeah. Um, made by the corporate owners of the History Channel. Yeah. Um, and I don't know really any more about it than, than the How guy. How quickly the, was the turnaround? It was about... Um, and it was Reels that stepped up. Yes, it up. was the Reels Channel, Stan Hubbard, who really stepped up. I mean, I... I, my, you know, all of our hats are off to him because... Yeah. You know, if My he hadn't, hats off to him. if he yeah. hadn't, I don't think it would have. Now, yeah. it would have aired in Canada. Yeah, it would have aired in forty countries around the world. Yeah, but it wouldn't have aired here, mm -hmm. and that to me would have been, you know, a major tragedy. Now, yeah. I don't think this is a this is not an issue of freedom of speech. Right. This is a, this is an economic issue. Yes. The History Channel bought the project; they have the right to do whatever they want with it. Right. Um, so it's not free speech. Right. But what it is, I think, on the corporate level. Um, is uh, caving to pressure mm -hmm. 
and I, I, it, it never occurred to me, frankly, that 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 would happen. Yeah. Uh, so it it took a few weeks. Um, I, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks after we got that news. Uh, to get the good news that Reels was going to uh, to air the show, and uh, they 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 spent a lot of money to get it, although they they got it at a pretty good price, but they they spent a lot of money to promote it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I think the only unfortunate thing is that. You know, reels just is not seen in as many households as kind of put them on the map, though. But it did. (laughs) It did, and it served a really uh, big purpose. And I think the fact that we, uh, you know, we were able to get uh, ten Emmy nominations is a uh, is huge, and it's a testament to Stan's faith in in the show. Yeah, and uh, it's huge. And I I, I now I'm curious, and and uh, I think a large part. So everybody knows what led to this interview was I had put a comment on Facebook and another writer commented on my comment on the Kennedys in 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 the depic- depiction in the strength of the miniseries and the writing by Steve Cronish and Joel Cernow. And um, and that's how this came to be. Something that I was curious about was, did you ever hear from any of the Kennedys no. after? No, not, not, not after, not during, not before. Uh, the only comments that I heard uh, were sort of, um, I know that Bobby Kennedy Jr. Uh, was quoted in the LA Times uh, a number of months ago saying that um, he hadn't seen the, the, the show, but he knew that the people who produced it had a deep, um, a hatred for his family. Wow. Uh, I thought that was unfortunate. Yeah, um, that is I, unfortunate. I, I don't have a deep hatred for his family. Right. On the contrary, Joel Cerno doesn't have a deep hatred for his family. Right. I think that's the thing. Or getting back to uh, when I said it would it was interesting, uh, the fact that Joel and I come to this from two different political points of view. Uh, what is interesting, and I, I, I've said this a number of times, I don't know if people will actually believe it, but um, Joel was actually more protective mm-hmm. of of the characters right. than I would have been. Right. Um, I think that... Uh, I think it showed. I really do. Well, I don't think, th- you know, there was never a political agenda. And I think that the people who, who, ha- who have said that mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning, right. uh, all through this... Um, uh, either have not seen the show, right, or or if they have, they can't get past their own agenda. And yeah. I think the the idea that because Joel comes from a different political uh, school of thought, that he could not be involved in a project that was fair, uh, that was uh, that showed these people in 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 all of the aspects of their personalities good and bad we you know i think the the kennedys have been so deified yeah uh in some circles now yeah. obviously there are people who hated their guts when they were alive and still do but right. i mean generally speaking they are this mythic group of people mm-hmm. um they weren't myths they were here 
They walked this earth. They made mistakes. They, they made mistakes, both public and private. Mm-hmm. Um, they were human beings mm-hmm. who I think were trying to figure out what it means to be a human being under the most difficult circumstances. With I a mean, magnifying glass that's, on you. That's right. And I think that... Uh, you know, we felt that when we were doing these characters, the, the only people who probably would not change over the course of the eight hours were going to be Joe Sr. and Rose. Yeah. They were adults. They yeah. were fully formed people. Yeah. When we meet them and they're fully formed people at the end, they are certainly affected yes. by the success of the family and the tragedies of the family. And his handicap. And his and Joe's handicap. Yeah. But um, I think that Jack and Jackie and Bobby were, I mean, they were kids more or less. Yeah. And so I think they were trying to figure out how to be, how to be adults. Yeah. While while trying to keep the world from blowing up. Yeah. And that's a pretty heavy responsibility. Um, I mean, you look at their ages and you think they had to wake up on certain mornings and go, are you kidding me? Like, where are we? Yeah. I, I, you know? I, I firmly believe that there was a, I mean, look, there, there's a, there was a famous uh, story that when, uh, when Jack Kennedy, uh, the first time he walked into the Oval Office, he was with his brother Ted and a friend of theirs, a friend of Jack's from the Navy, and, and Jack kind of sat down behind the president's desk and he and he whirled himself around in the chair like a kid does and he he said to he said to the to the two other guys he says you know i feel like some guard is going to come in any second ago all right you three guys get out of here this yep. is the president's office yeah um and i think what we tried to to do with those characters was to show a growth and a hopefully a maturation over the course of the eight hours. I think the guy that we show Jack to be in January of 1961 is a very, is is one guy. He's a very different guy in November of 1963. I would agree. He has experienced uh, uh, public uh, mistakes. He he made a mistake in the Bay of Pigs. The difference is he admitted it. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't had many presidents since who have who have admitted their mistakes. Yeah. Um, he was completely sobered by the experience at uh, the, in the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. because he, he learned how close we came to complete annihilation yeah. and how easily it could have happened by mistake. Yeah. That, that was the thing that kept him up yeah. more than anything else, that he and Khrushchev might be able to figure a way out of this. Mm-hmm. But the big problem is some guy, you know, 12 levels down right. who doesn't get the word. Right. And who pushes a button because he freaks all. out. Yeah. And then one leads, thing leads to another yeah. and the world is over. Yeah. And I think that the the death of their child yes. uh, in August of 63 yeah. um, changed him in a, in a also in a significant way. I yeah. think he was trying... Uh, to be a better by, man. To be a better yeah. man. I think he, I think on November 22nd, uh, 1963, I think he and Jackie might have been closer than they 
I had would ever agree, been. and I like how you depicted that. Um, and yeah. I think that's the tragedy. Yeah. I think the tragedy is maybe with the exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, because that clearly was a. I think we, I think we're alive yeah. today because of yeah. that. But, you know, the, the 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 number of his great successes, legislative successes. I mean, there weren't that many. Yeah. Um, but I think that he was learning right. how to be president. Yeah. I think he was looking at Vietnam and saying, you know, I'm not so sure this is where we should be. Yeah. I, mean, if the, if the Vietnamese, I think he was finding his own voice. Yes, he was. And yes, within I his think, family. Yeah. I think yeah. he had the growing yeah. sense of confidence. Yes. That, uh, you know, he, he listened to he listened to all the experts at the Bay of Pigs and it was a disaster. Yeah. He didn't listen to the experts in the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. because he didn't trust them anymore. Yeah. And I think he, he didn't trust the guys at CIA. He didn't trust the guys with all the scrambled eggs on their hats. Yeah. He didn't trust the military. And I think they resented it. Right. Um, you know, there are people who think that they had something to do with uh, with his death. I don't know about that. But, right. Um, you know. But there are all kinds of theories. I mean, I think the bottom line when you look at a show like this, and I thank you so much for your candor and being so honest about this. I have to say, and before we take a break, I have to say, I, like you, grew up idolizing the Kennedys. And so I, and I am, I actually am am close friends with a relative of the Kennedys. And and so I, I also- Did they see the show? Not to my knowledge. And I, you know, it's a very interesting thing because as a friend, I would love to say you have to see this to understand that it's not what you're perceiving it to be. Because from somebody who idolized the Kennedys, I didn't come out of it with a darker view. Mm -hmm. I came out of it with a view of many of, you brought to life many of what we heard in the news and what was covered, but you humanized it because you deepened the life experience and you brought it to life. Well, and it made me connect more that's, with them. That's gratifying to yeah. me. That's what, that's what we set out to do. Yeah. And if it worked, great. Yes, definitely. All right, we are going to take a break. We are here with Stephen Cronish who is the executive producer on The Kennedys and was co-executive producer and Emmy Award winner on 24. This is Jen Crisanti. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Crisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jencrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Stephen Cronish. So let's talk about 24. That also was a huge um, breakthrough TV-wise in the serialized version of Telling Story and Jack Bauer being a bigger-than-life character. What was it like working on that show? It was a fantastic experience. I, 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 did not, I was not part of the creation of it. I, I think my first year was season three. Mm-hmm. It was... Quite groundbreaking. I mean, in, yeah. the, in this, not not just in the in the genre, which I guess you know there had been agents before on television, but I mean certainly the you know the device and the 
the the way the stories were told. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody had ever done a show in real time, mm-hmm. uh, real time that even accounted for commercials. Right. Um, it it gave a sense of energy, I think, to to everything that was going on. Um, it it provided its own sort of challenges, however. I think from the storytelling perspective, you know, you get used to things like dissolves. Right. You get used to time cuts. We didn't have them. Every minute had to be accounted for. Wow. So there was no such thing as, you know, 20 minutes later. Right. We we have to do 20 minutes. Yeah. And I think that that was... I think, look, the audience loved it. It was a big water cooler show. It was a huge water cooler. You had to watch it when it was on. Yes, and I think that is, now, that is is a great, uh, you know, to to know the people were talking about it the next day was, you know, that's always a lot of fun. Um, It it is, I think, a, uh, a bit of a cautionary tale because... The success of the show, when it was in first run, when right. it was on the air, right, was pretty enormous. Right. Because it is a serial, it had virtually no syndication value at all. Wow, that's right. Because overseas, syndicators that sell hate well. serials. Yeah. yeah. They don't want to be told that the show has to run in a particular order, or else it makes no sense. Right. Now. The show also had tremendous DVD value. Yes. However, huge. And people, you know, would would you know would buy the the set and have these marathons. You know, whether they they'd stay up twenty four hours and watch the whole thing. I mean, it was right. crazy. Right. Um, but I would I would say that if if I'm you know talking to a group of of writers or potential uh, creators of shows, I, it is something to be aware of because the serialization aspect. Um, is, is a very tough one for for most uh, outlets. They yeah. they I, I don't know that there's another one on the air right now that is as clearly right. serialized as Twenty Four was. Well, and I think the ones that have been on have failed, like Kidnapped and um, the ABC had several. I mean that that it was like the same type of thing. It's just a very I think you know. Be, be, and because of the st- kinds of stories that that Twenty Four was telling, and because of the character of Jack Bauer and yeah. and and Kiefer and all that yeah. stuff, yeah. you know, um, I think the show got started pretty well, pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think that because I do know that in when they were talking about doing season two, mm-hmm. somebody at the network said, "Well, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this like twenty four hour thing." Right. I was like, "What? <laughs> That's the show, That's dummy." The concept. I mean, Hello. what are you talking about? We yeah. don't do that. We, we're just another show. Yeah. And uh, you know, Joel and Bob Cochran were quite right to fight for it. Um, they were. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's. I think th- that, that was causes the, show. the de- demise of shows when well, you go away from what the concept is. Look, yeah. I think I think this is another thing that that as you uh, as you if you're lucky enough to 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 get to work with. Uh, you know, with the networks, um, what is 
what starts off as your image and your vision and all that kind of stuff, you know, goes through a lot mm-hmm. of hands. A lot of chefs. And a and lot I, of chefs yes, in the kitchen. Yep. And it's, uh, you know, that can and be And sometimes extremely... it gets better and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I would say it rarely <laughs> gets better. Um, I think that, uh, but look, that's that's part of the challenge it of is. being in this position. You have to, not only are you dealing with the creative input or non-creative input sometimes of of either the network executives or your own staff right. or yourself. Right. Uh, you know, you make mistakes too. Right. But uh, you're also dealing with, uh, you know, uh, budgetary constraints. Well, and you're and dealing with advertisers' tastes. Yes. You're dealing you're, with their dealing with right. constraints that they have to pass on to you from the studio and the uh, network. I yeah. think what 24 tapped into in many ways, and I, I think we were sort of falsely painted with the brush of being, you know, the show that advocates torture and stuff like that. I, I, I don't I don't really know that we advocated torture. I oh, think. that's interesting. I think torture, even, even you know, John McCain, who was a big fan of the show, came to the set right. a couple of times. I think he was actually did a cameo right. for us. You know, if anybody knows that torture doesn't work, it's John McCain. Yeah. Because they tortured him and it didn't work. Yes. Um, but... And didn't you guys have a black president? We yeah. Had, yeah. We had a black president. Yeah. Well, that I think was, we had two, actually. Yeah. Um, we had a, a female president. So when that, from that standpoint, we were, uh, you know. You were 10 steps ahead. 10 steps yeah. ahead. Yeah. But I think that um, what the show did do, I think, was tap into a a sense of frustration that, that sort of, you know, re- reached its, had it, had its peak and, and in some respect its major beginning in 9-11 that, um, you know, we're dealing with forces in our, in our foreign policy and that trickles into our domestic policy. We're dealing with forces that, we, that are difficult to identify. Mm-hmm. They don't wear uniforms. Right. You, do, you don't know where they are. Right. Um, and, and, what, and Jack Bauer was kind of the epitome of a guy who didn't care about that. Right. You know, and he, he would do the, une- yeah. yeah, he would do the unexpected. He would, uh, you know, and I'm sure that there were a lot of discussions. Uh, you know, I know there were discussions in, in at networks, and I know I'm sure there were discussions throughout the country. You know, you know, do we, what lengths do we go as a, as a people, as a society? Right. To, to deal with with other people who don't fight by the rules. Right. Who don't subscribe to the Constitution. Yes. That we are supposed to subscribe to. Yeah. You know, it is the, it is a very, it's an, uh, it's a very difficult question. Right. I think that, uh, you know, if, if, if your, if your enemy is, is down in the gutter and do you, do you adopt the means of the enemy to to try to defeat him? Do you go right. into the gutter yourself? Do you abandon the uh, the tenets of of what sort of America is supposed to stand for right. when you're dealing with people who don't stand for anything except right. carrying out their goals? Yeah, uh, that that that's a tough question. But I think that makes it interesting. Like when I I. I think about what we've talked about with 24 and what we talked about with the Kennedys. I mean, how amazing 
from a writer's standpoint to have a voice on shows that have made and are going and are still making a massive difference. I mean, I, I think that is huge. On that note, like for you, what is next as far as like what would be a perfect scenario for you to come next? Well, I've been spoiled. Right. And that's a tough thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think working on on the Kennedys and, and on 24 and even going back to a show I did many years ago called Wise Guy, which was a serialized show. Right. Uh, but, but where we got into sort of uh, uh, human issues, I think uh, – that's kind of what I are you look developing? forward to. Yeah, yeah, Good. and you know, you know, you go, you go out there, and Good. it's it, it's never easy. But yeah. uh, but I think the things that get me excited and the things that make you want to go to work in the morning, you know, are are those types of things. When yeah. you feel like you can, I'm not saying that I want to make my shows like a college lecture. Right. I obviously want to make them entertaining want and I want people to watch people them. But I would like it if there was something if, if if they said a little something. Yes. Or if they made they dealt with an issue that, that may not have an easy answer. Yeah. Um that I think is is when you, you realize that that if you're in this position, if you're lucky enough to have it, you you have a great uh a forum that's unlike just about any other because you know that Good, bad, or indifferent, whatever it is you write, six weeks later, millions of people will see. Yes. And, and, and the, greatest, the greatest writers in the history of the world right. have never had audiences like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge You're leaving uh, your imprint. And yeah, and I think it carries with it a responsibility Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think you, 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 you know, if if you're not going to be responsible, somebody at standards and practices will be for you. Yeah. But um, how would you feel about like I look at your voice and I look at your body of work and I think there's a part of me, like if I were still at a network or a studio, that I would go, I would love. (laughs) <laughs> for you to develop a uh, cable show. Sure. Well, my number is, that is yeah. I mean, I do. I look at it. I think you have a beautiful voice, and I would love well, to see you utilize it in a way that you can push the boundaries Well, maybe I'll a be a voiceover guy on my you own know. show. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that, uh, look, I, I think that it's, it's a very strange business. Right. And I think what we're seeing, frankly, what I never thought I would see, um is that, uh, you know, if you've done this as long as I have, you're, uh, you're almost by definition considerably older than the people who occupy the positions uh, at networks and studios who... Uh, who how does it feel the, saying that? Like, um, how, how... Not what great. Is, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I have to say? Here's my feeling on that. It's interesting. On Facebook the other day, I had come from a meeting where I had met a writer who was very big when I was at Spelling and an executive there. And I felt his vulnerability in his value on the market now. Mm -hmm. And it hurt me, I have to say. It did hurt me. From It frustrated me 
Like I felt like, and I went home and I put on Facebook, I said, somebody needs to create an agency for writers over 50. And I think there needs to be a mandate that every staff should have one or two minimum of these. Because I said, my feeling is we need to embrace this group more, not less. Well, there just that's my opinion. There, there is a, uh, the, the Writers Guild itself. Right. Uh, certainly encourages. Yes. I don't think you can dictate. Yeah, it know, does. The Writers Guild is. has a diversity thing that that does you know, look just, at that. Just as it is but with when you look at ethnicities and in things life, like that. The more the older you get, the more life you have to reflect on. So writing is the one job well, I, that age should not apply to in I, any way, I shape, or form. I agree with you, but I think you know? that this is this is one business where um, experience may not necessarily be an asset. Yeah. Because you you can tend but to it be viewed. Be. Well, yeah, I think it should be. But you you know you. I are mean, how old was Stephen viewed, J. Canal at the end of his career? Well, he was in his sixties. Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah. Um, um, but Aaron Spelling was eighty three. Right. I'm like, what if we had put him out to pasture because right. of now, our standards? But you know, in you fairness, know? Aaron was not writing right. the shows. Right. Right. But certainly under his umbrella, no yes. question about it. Yeah. Um. I, you know, I think that's uh, you know that look when you're when you're when you're 20, yeah, you never think about those issues. Yeah. You have this this you know you're going to be immortal. I think yeah. what you find now is that you know the executives when you go in there, it's like the picture of Dorian Gray. I mean, they're always 28. You yeah. get older, but they always stay the same. Yeah, and uh, isn't that wild? And I, and I think you know that that that's not without its challenges. I think yeah. it's it's difficult. But no, I like honestly hearing you talk about it because I do think it's something. My feeling is, and trust me, I'm I'm the writing instructor for NBC's Writers on the Verge, and it's a diversity program for mm -hmm. writers. And and I look at it and I just go, my feeling is, honestly, the best voices should be on the show, period. Mm -hmm. However, my my feeling within that is that the voice of wisdom, and and I think for many people who are, when you have four kids, it's your way of staying young. Um, so you can tap into it's not like you have you're away from what the pulse is of what people care about and what people watch. It's even more so. And I think as writers as their kids get writers who have kids as the kids get older, then you're in an even stronger place to write and reflect. Well, you know, you, you they, know? they tend to drag you into the world of social networking and yeah. all those kinds of things. Yes. That, uh, they you know, keep you, you fresh. Would, yeah, they do. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I can't say that I am familiar with every band that uh, that my kids listen to, but right. I'm, I'm certainly familiar with a lot more of them yeah. than I would have been had I not had kids. Yes. Uh, so. Yeah, and no. I mean, so okay for our last two questions. Now I'm curious if you were to, and you know, I'm going to tell everybody we missed. Uh, Stephen talking about a lot of his shows. He has a massive body of work, but we wanted to focus on the Kennedys and 24 for this interview. Um, if you were to start your writing career today, knowing what you know now, would you have done anything differently? I would have been a lot more dedicated at the beginning. I would have been, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm kind of a self-motivator, but I... I you know, I, I think after when I came out here, I, I kind of said to myself, you know, I'll, 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 I'll give it three, four years. 
and I would still recommend somebody who's starting out to kind of have some sense of of the of time, how much you're going to give to this thing. You know, unfortunately, we're it's we're our business is different from from sports. In sports, the clock is very obvious, and you can either hit a curveball or you can't. There's no subjectivity about it. With what we do, whether you're an actor, director, writer. Um, you know, there, it's very easy to keep going, well, next month, next year. And before you know it, you turn around and you're 40 years old, and then it's really kind of a thing. I mean, what I, I'm not really that big on giving advice to, to other people who are trying this, because I think each, each of us have to come to it in kind of our own way. But I would say that, um, that the the good news about being a writer is that nobody can stop you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're That's an actor, excellent. you have to have some place yeah. to go and act. If you're yeah. a director, you have something to direct. But you know, if you have a computer, or if you have a pencil and a piece of paper, you can write your you way can into write. a job. And I think that's yeah. really that is the great thing mm-hmm. about this aspect of the business. Um, and I do think that perseverance. Is is a is a major component, uh, but I think you have to be strong enough to if you are writing and you're getting feedback and it it it's all of one type and it it you need to listen to it whether it's whether it's you know you got to improve in these areas or maybe you should think of something else. Mm-hmm. You know if 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 twenty people tell you you're drunk, you should probably sit down. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I would be the last one to say quit because, again, it took me 10 years. Do you um, love what you're doing? Occasionally. Um, I, I find the process of writing extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I find it torture, actually. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, it's, you know, I, love, I love it when it's over. I love it. I, you know, for example, I mean, I, I loved looking at the Kennedy scripts sideways, right? Because they were really thick, right? It was like about look six what inches I did, of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and there clearly are moments when you know you're kind of on the right track, and yeah. you're creating a scene or a circumstance that that that's going to work out. That will speak uh, to that, the masses. Yes, yeah. and and you know where you where you're letting the characters kind of just take a life and 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 do all that stuff, um, you know. But I, and I've always been a little bit worried about people who say they love it, mm-hmm. only because I just don't understand it. <laughs> right. I mean, I, and I, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, I love writing. You know, maybe I'll take a crack at it. You know, yeah, it, it it's sort of easy to write when you feel like it. Yeah. It's not so easy when, when you, you don't have feel to, like and there is a deadline. Yeah, yeah. And when you're, you know, when everybody is waiting, yeah, for those pages to come down, um, and that's your mind not, isn't. In I, the I'm place not having fun. To, yeah, I'm not yeah. having fun doing that. I get it. Um, I get it. And I think that uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that there are some people who thrive on that. Right. I'm not one of them. Um, but, but I think that look, it it's like that's honest though. It, it, yeah. And if you have. I think if you have a passion for it, right, 
And if you are of a certain age, right? Uh, that is to say, you know, with probably few responsibilities, right? Um, then you have to do it. Yeah. I mean, you, the worst thing is to go through life with the regret that you never even tried. Yeah. I I don't, you know, I. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's a very, very hard business. At least you know you tried. But you tried. Yeah. And if you can be honest with yourself that you tried as as best you could. Yeah, and the bottom line is, like, trust me, with my business, I've worked with over 350 writers in the last three and a half years. And people will say, oh, my God, but so many of your people have sold pilots or staffed or this or that. And I'll say, yeah, but it's a numbers game. I said, if you think about it, I've worked with 350 writers. I've had success with probably 35 of those writers. So when you look at those numbers, you you do go. But my feeling is, my feeling is that writing is therapeutic regardless. Getting story out there serves a mass purpose. Creating a dream whether it's seen by the massives or seen by your family, is still an accomplishment. No question about it. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at the shows that, that over the years have maintained a, a level of quality, it is a huge accomplishment, uh, you know, particularly if they have had the same, basically the same group of writers and all that stuff. Just to keep up the consistency is really tough. But um, I would say that if I were starting out and I had to write a piece of material mm-hmm. um, I would try to find it in my own experience yeah I mean I would try to I would try to tell a story that nobody else can tell I think that's great advice um, yeah you know I, you know uh, I'm not saying that writing a spec uh, good wife or a spec CSI or something you know may not may have value but I think that if you're telling a story based on your own experience or close enough, mm-hmm. um, the uniqueness of that experience will, if you're any good at all, right, will probably come out. Yeah, and I somebody agree. who reads it will appreciate that. Yes, and it won't look like the fifty other scripts yeah. that he has sitting on his desk. Yeah, because I can tell you one thing. These people, whether they're whether they're at networks or studios or agencies, yeah, read so much garbage, yes, that anything that's good just jumps out at them, yeah, and they all of a sudden they've got a reason to live, yeah, and you want to hit that moment, you want you want your screw, <laughs> yeah. you want to be the guy that yes. does that for yeah. them, and I think that if you, you know. Whether whether crazy things happen to you, right? Whether sad things happen to you, whether Emotional funny truth. things happen to you, resonate. Add yeah. fiction. That's what my book storyline, uh, finding gold in your life story, yeah. is all about. I mean, I used yeah. to I used to wish that I had had a more screwed up childhood because yeah. I thought that I've heard writers you know, say that. guys like Tennessee Williams, yes. you know, whose whose life was a uh, was a horror show. Yeah. Um, you know, but boy, there was a lot to write about. Yeah, you know, I grew up on Long well. Island. My parents were fine. Everybody was good. We didn't. <laughs> right. there, there were no problems. You know, I've so heard writers complain about. This. So yes. you know, but I, I, I think that that still, you if still it didn't, if it didn't happen to you, then and, maybe you yeah. know somebody it happened to, yes, and you can tell right. their story. Right. Because I right. do think that that, uh, 
you know, that first piece of material that's read by somebody, it may be the last chance you have yes. with that person. Yeah. And if what you write is lousy or right. doesn't excite them at all, the next time they see your your uh, name on that cover sheet, it's going to go, oh, I, I read something by him. He, he wasn't very good. I'm going to yeah. skip it. So don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss that opportunity because you may impression. not get it again. Yes. Well, that is fantastic. Um, I want to thank you so much. I so appreciate your honesty and your candor, and I love to hear what you have to say. I know my listeners are going to love to hear what you had to say, and um, and I appreciate your taking the time out of your schedule. Please say thank you to your family. My pleasure. It was yeah. uh, it was fun, and anytime. All right. Thank, thank you. you. This is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. Very quickly, I want to tell you about um, some upcoming events in the next few weeks. Um, in August 27th, I am going to be doing a panel for the Future of Story Conference. You can go on the Michael Weezy Productions website. Uh, Michael Weezy is uh, W-I-E-S-E Productions website and find out more information about this event or go on my website and look under events and seminars and then I will be teaching an online class for Michael Weezy Film School that is going to be uh, brand new starting uh, September 6th um, he will be having all his authors teach um, story to you in classes that are very affordable and from the comfort of your own home. I will be teaching a class called Story Tools on Tuesday, September 6th from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. And lastly, I will be um, teaching two classes at the Screenwriting Expo on Saturday, September 17th. Uh, if you can make it by, I would love to see you there. Thank you again for joining us. This is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. and StoryWise Podcast. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.